Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today we have a very interesting topic today. We're kind of focusing on uh, presuppositional methodology, uh, but from a very interesting perspective, um, we're going to be taking presuppositionalism from the perspective of Eastern Orthodoxy, those who are aware of um, you know, people like Jay Dyer, who are, is known for uh, using presuppositional methodology from within the context of an Eastern Orthodox perspective and others online as well. But I think Jay is, is probably the, the, the face of, of this perspective in terms of um, making it popular through his many debates and things like that. Um, how should we understand this? Um, many people who are familiar with uh, presuppositional methodology typically um, are exposed to this method through maybe reading Van Til or reading Bonson. Uh, it is typically associated with kind of the reformed uh, tradition. So um, this is going to be a very interesting topic. This is something that actually I've been wanting to do for a really long time um, because I don't, um, I don't understand Eastern Orthodoxy in any great depth. I'm not an, I'm not an expert. Uh, my job as the host is to bring this topic to the audience and hopefully get guests who are competent to speak about these issues. And, and hopefully, um, these conversations are useful and beneficial, uh, to everyone. Um, so hopefully this will be interesting to everyone listening in. And I am super excited. These uh, two gentlemen are, are, um, um, really, I, I'm excited that both these guys are on at the same time. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, if you hear some beeping in the background, my van has been going off the uh, alarm. So hopefully my wife will hear it and it won't be beeping for the rest of the night. But uh, all right. So uh, let me introduce uh, my first guest. Um, and I'm going to welcome Jeffrey Waddington. We're calling Jeff from now on. Uh, Jeffrey Waddington, he is a minister in the Cambodian Presbyterian Church and missionary professor at Westminster Theological College and Seminary, Cambodia. He lives in East Norriton, Pennsylvania. He's married with two adult daughters, and he also was formerly with the Reformed Forum with Lane Tipton and Camden Busey. So folks, folks who are familiar with the Reformed Forum, those names should sound familiar to you. I've had uh, Lane Tipton on the show. Never had Camden on, but hopefully in the future, uh, we'll be able to get him on as well. Uh, he is quite knowledgeable on the topic of presuppositional apologetics, especially within the Van Tilian tradition. And he came highly recommended by Lane Tipton himself. So um, I asked Lane, Lane, would you like to come on and talk about this topic? He goes, nah, why don't you try Jeffrey Waddington? He'd be the perfect person <laughs> to come on. So um, it's been a blessing to connect with uh, with Jeffrey. And we've had some great conversations over the phone. I have a 45-minute yeah. drive home. So we get to talk about apologetics and stuff like that. So I've learned a lot from him. So I'm very, very excited to have Jeffrey Waddington. For those who want to look a little bit more into some of his stuff, he, uh, he co-edited, I believe, with Lane Tipton, the book Resurrection and Eschatology. And... He is an expert in the, um, I guess, the beliefs and biography, bio biographical information on Jonathan Edwards. And so he is also the author of The Unified Operations of the Human Soul, Jonathan Edwards' Theological Anthropology and Apologetics. So welcome, Jeffrey. Uh, this is your first time here. I'm happy to have you. Oh, pleased to be with you, brother. Uh, this is, uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's uh, for me, uh, in terms of the Eastern Orthodox side of the discussion, equation it'll be a you know learning experience for me mm -hmm. uh as to how uh those in the eastern orthodox tradition uh use the presuppositional method the differences and similarities between you know its reformed expression and its eastern orthodox expression 
So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Well, excellent. When I when I uh, promoted the fact that you would be on, someone someone posted, "Who a rare Jeffrey Waddington sighting on on your channel?" Like, <laughs> I mean, there's not many interviews with Jeffrey Waddington that I that I saw. I'm like, all right, well, that's cool. You know, that made me feel I've special. Been like, other, yeah, I've been on the other side watching you. Uh, um, okay, but now now I have the privilege of joining you, so I'm I'm excited. Well, it is it is it is genuinely a privilege. My next guest is Joshua Shooping. Uh, Joshua is a former Orthodox priest and author of Irenaeus and Orthodox Apologetic Methodology, a Neo-Patristic Presuppositionalism. I remember actually looking for books on presuppositionalism some while, some time ago, and I saw this book on Amazon. I'm like, what is this? This seems interesting. And I think my first bit of knowledge about Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism was seeing your book on Amazon, Joshua. So uh, I thought that was interesting. And so hopefully we can kind of get into some details and help folks understand uh, what that's all about. Um, he's also written a manual of theosis and he wrote the book and you can make any corrections, Joshua, if I get any of this wrong. You are the author of An Existential Soteriology, Penal Substitutionary Atonement in Light of the Mystical Theology of the Church Fathers. Sounds Super interesting. Have I got that right? Are those two books yours? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'll claim them, though I would probably, uh, uh, if I ever came out with a second edition, I'd probably have a few retractions here and there. Okay. All right. Well, um, welcome. It is a pleasure. I've been watching some interviews that you've had on other people's shows. I know you've been on Dr. Tony Costa's show um, and some others as well, kind of outlining for folks a little bit about your journey from Eastern Orthodoxy to, um, what, what flavor of reformed Christian would you associate yourself with? And I say reformed, that could mean a lot of things for people. Yeah. Um, good, good question. Um, prior to, um, entering into the Orthodox church, I did spend a little bit of time at a reformed Baptist church. Uh, for a few months, the, they went through the London 1689, uh, did a really good, thorough job with it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in their, you know, Sunday school uh, groups, they're reading John Owen, you know, uh, like they <laughs> were really doing real work. They were studying Hebrew. They were studying Greek. It was awesome. Uh, but with my background, it was a little bit uh, too much of a culture shock uh, for me at the time. And so when I ended up into Eastern Orthodoxy, I was kind of simultaneously exposed to reform thought, but also kind of alienated from it. Mm. Um, a lot of uh, Eastern Orthodox converts find, you know, the West is the problem with everything. Like we, mm. you know, well, we hate the West because we're Eastern Orthodox. Everything's Augustine's fault uh, or Augustine's fault and everything is the Filioque's fault, you know? And so we, we blame that for the ills <laughs> of planet Earth, you know? Okay. And I have a, I have a sore throat. What, what do you think it is? It's the Filioque. Yeah. Filioque. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and so uh, my exposure, I guess, and kind of how I ended up landing uh, in, in like the reformed sort of uh, side of things kind of began, if I can share a little bit of my story in relation mm -hmm. to kind of like the presuppositional apologetics and reform uh, reformed dimension of things was uh, during seminary. I, I believe it was my first or second semester. I think it might've been my second semester. And um, I hated penal substitutionary atonement. I mean, that's just Western legalism. I mean, that's mm. just, it's uh, a legal fiction. It's just kind of like a part of this whole big, you know, problem with, with Western Christianity. And I was very happy with my mystical Eastern theology uh, at the time. And 
So I'm just kind of like happily, you know, reading away and I come across this gentleman named Simeon the New Theologian who incidentally, or perhaps not incidentally, lived prior to Anselm. And so I'm reading one, a homily uh, uh, that's in a collection that was put together by uh, a Russian in the 19th century, Theophan the Recluse. It was later translated by um, Sarah from Rose. And in that homily, I just see these concepts that sound like this dreaded thing I heard the preacher bellowing about in the Reformed Baptist Church. I'm like, this sounds like penal substitutionary atonement here. It sounds like Christ is in our place and suffering on our behalf and paying the penalty of our sin. And I'm like, that's so strange. So I go to an Orthodox priest and I share it with him. I say, what do you think of this? And, and then he does the very typical Orthodox move. Well, we don't just take what one father says. Uh, what we do is, is we take things from the hymns and the canons of the church. And so this doctrine isn't anywhere in the, in the hymns of the church where we derive our doctrine from. And so I said, okay, uh, well, let me, I'm just going to go check, you know, I'm this budding scholar at seminary. So it's like, I'm going to go check these sources, you know? And so I go and I check some of these hymns that are, and all of the hymns in the Orthodox church are fully established for like a thousand plus years. So they're unchanging. So the doctrine is just there um, in that. So they sing their doctrine. They sing their teaching, so to speak. So there's really no new hymns that they sing. Sure, there might sure. be new melodies, but no new hymns, so to speak. Uh, at least not sung in the context of a liturgy, a formal mm -hmm. liturgy. And so I find actually this penal substitutionary atonement concept there. And I'm like, that's so weird. Like I'm finding it in Simeon, the new theologian. Now I'm finding it in, in uh, uh, some of the hymns of the church. And I take it back to this priest. And then he asks me, and he's a convert uh, from, from evangelicalism. Okay. And because uh, uh, there is a very deep dis distinction a lot of times between like how an evangelical converting into orthodoxy kind of like brings this whole set of uh, assumptions with them that a cradle person may not have. And so I share this with him and he's like, well, what do you think that, you know, penal substitutionary atonement even means is his question uh, to, to me. And so I'm like, well, you know, I don't really know for sure because I'm just recalling kind of vaguely what I remember. Like I couldn't give it in super specific detail. So I go online and, and I'm looking up and I find J.I. Packer's The Logic of Substitutionary Atonement. And I read it and I'm like, that's exactly what I'm finding. This is amazing. This is really cool. So I share with him that article and I'm saying, this is what I, I'm, I'm referring to. This is what I think I'm seeing. And then he turns around and accuses me of being like a J.I. Packer fanboy. And then I'm just like you know, projecting my prior evangelical sort of thing into here. And it's like, I'm actually going through this really deep kind of paradigm shift. And so I start going back in more fathers, I find, you know, like, for example, in John Chrysostom, the whole idea of like uh, that we give the example sometimes is what if there was a king's son who took the place of a condemned criminal, okay. you know, and he took upon mm -hmm. himself, you know, the guilt and the shame and the punishment of it. I mean, that comes directly from John Chrysostom. Uh, he talks about that in uh, his commentary on Second Corinthians 5 and in Galatians as well. Um 
And so I'm finding it there. I'm finding it in Cyril of Alexandria. Now I'm starting to like purchase reformed theology books okay. because when I'm asking about it, people are telling me things that reformed theology says, but when I look it up in the sources, it's not actually what it says. Hmm. And so I'm starting to go through this sort of like sifting process. It's like, why are you telling me that penal substitutionary atonement is X? I buy the book by a reformed theologian or, or, or I find an article online by someone like respectable, like Jay Packer, and they're saying the opposite. And it's like a kind of a clear message. So I start I'm making some little blogs or whatever. And, you know, I think that, you know, maybe I'll be the one to kind of rejuvenate the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement in the, the, the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay. So my reformed theology library is starting to grow a little bit and, and it's, and it's cool. It's kind of exciting. I remember these names from the time when I was in that reformed Baptist church briefly, you know, I'm remembering, Oh, John Owen. I'm remembering Jonathan Edwards. I'm remembering, you know, just like some of these names and Puritans and, and the whole uh, other Puritans, and the whole thing. And so I start finding that there's this like really pervasive theme of misrepresentation of reformed theology, like just like caricatures. Hmm. Um, sometimes it's like Eastern Orthodoxy is just like the Arminian's dream, you know, uh, you know, in some way. <laughs> uh, and not to, to speak ill. I know that there's some sure. very biblical, faithful, you know, Arminian Christians. So it's, it's not sure. to speak ill of anyone. Um, but uh, so as I'm getting to the point where I'm going to be doing my THM, I think, well, you know what? In Eastern Orthodoxy, no one does apologetics. Like no one's really contending for the faith. There's no books on apologetics. I could find one that was in the English language that I don't even think was in print anymore. I had to have a friend at the seminary give me a copy of it. And it was kind of just like a natural theology type thing that you might find in a Catholic manual or something like that. Well, well Joshua, would you say no one you knew of did i mean i would imagine some people do apologetics but it's not like a big deal like maybe in evangelicalism and reform circles or yeah or would oh, literally no i should say methodology okay he was like really engaging with like what is apologetics and how do we do it kind of self with a self-conscious approach and epistemology and sure. methodology sure. and so you'd have people like arguing and, and making some debates here and there but it wasn't mm -hmm. like i mean there's like a cottage industry of like apologetics, you know, sure. in the, the, even the Protestant world, um, right. even somewhat in the, in the Catholic world as well. But in the Orthodox, if you were going to have like a shelf, like of books that had the word apologetics in it anywhere, or like maybe there's, I mean, there's less than 50 probably if there's mm. even that. There's no Eastern Orthodox Frank Turek somewhere. <laughs> no. And there might be in Russian, there might be in Greek or Romanian or something. Okay. Like that. Okay. Uh, so, um, I thought, you know what, I really want to look at how did the church fathers, I want to take, you know, you can't, you know, do all the church fathers in a thesis. Sure. So I thought, well, let me go to Irenaeus, you know, one mm -hmm. of the early, you know, great the theologians of the church. And I'm going to study his, uh, apologetic methodology, at least as he seems to present it. Right. So I took his on apostolic preaching. I took the introductions and the conclusions of each of the five books of uh, against the heresies so that I could see what he said he was trying to do, like what he was trying to accomplish. And then I'd go to the the uh, the end of the of each book and see what he thought he accomplished. Sure. So I didn't look at his arguments to, in, in the in the heart of the book to see if he was successful in 
in in executing that argument, but I just wanted to see how he framed the 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 approach to doing theolo theological mm. apologetics against the Gnostics, of course. Okay. And so I wanted to place that into the broader framework of of the apologetics world in Christendom, at least in the English language. Sure. So I'm, you know, going to take, you know, evidentialism, I'm going to take the classical approach, and I'm going to take uh, the uh, presuppositional approach. And so I pick Van Til and I pick Bonson as like my two main representatives. I had an earlier copy, uh, I don't have the updated copy of Frame's book on apologetics. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, he definitely seems to have his own view, like, than than Bonson. They aren't like twins, you know, by any sense of, of the word. They're like, they're like stepbrothers. You, yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Frames the redheaded stepchild, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. And so I'm really starting to engage, you know, as much as I can with, you know, Ventilian uh, thought, uh, especially as represented in Bonson. Hmm. And I'm finding it just like kind of glorious you know it's like really kind of making sense because it looks exactly like what Irenaeus is doing sure mm. and even though Irenaeus would have been like an earlier form not f as fully developed and there's some very interesting quotes where he talks about like kind of like the epistemic limits that people have even of like mundane things you know, that like we require God's revelation in order to reveal to us the truth about even everyday things. Mm -hmm. So I'm like really cool. It's like, yeah, that kind of sounds like it's moving in that presuppositional direction. Sure. You know, rather than making like a Catholic sort of natural theology realism kind of, you know, argument. He didn't really yeah. ever seem to quite do that to me. So, now, you, so you're saying that when you read Irenaeus, you saw seeds of a presuppositional sort of approach going on when yeah. you were reading like a Bonson and maybe what were you reading Van Til at all? Mm -hmm. Right. So you kind of saw this uh, connection, right? Resonance, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah. Well, well let's, well, let's jump into this specific question because I'm sure there's more to unpack there. You wrote, you wrote a whole book on it, which um, if folks are interested, I'm just going to read the title real quick again. Um, Joshua's book is, um, Irenaeus and Orthodox Apologetic Methodology and Neopatristic Presuppositionalism. So they can check that out um, and go into the details of that. But here's my question here. So um, as an Eastern Orthodox believer, you held to a, a type of presuppositionalism. So what is presuppositionalism from an Eastern Orthodox perspective? What are they trying to do? If you can lay that out for us. And the reason why I have Jeffrey silently waiting his turn is I want you to set the context of an Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism. And then Jeffrey's going to come in in a little bit and tell us the reformed context. We're going to put them side by side and see what's going on. Does it really work? Which system does it make sense to understand apologetic methodology? So, um, so if you can lay that out, what is an Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism? Yeah. And can I preface that with, with one last comment to kind of like, Course, uh, connect in uh, maybe this last little bit of peace from the story is okay. and it was one of the things that kind of moved me to even you know come onto the show because how i had mentioned that no one was really doing apologetic methodology hmm. um in the eastern orthodox world and this was still at the time when like this like even Eastern Orthodox, you know, um, internet apologetics wasn't like a full-fledged what they call the ortho bro movement. 
So, you know, someone, uh, a gentleman like Jay Dyer was still very new in the kinds of things that he was doing. So in some of his early episodes, someone told me, I've never watched him much, and that's why I wouldn't really, I couldn't really engage in a lot of detail with his sure. particular perspective on some of these things. And he's probably taken it in directions I'm not aware of. Um, but he like held up apparently, you know, one of my book, uh, that book on apologetic methodology as something that he sort of saw as something consistent somewhat, I guess, with his approach. Mm. And so I felt like I kind of contributed and even gave like voice and I would, and I would feel bad, like, and, and I don't want to, maybe it's thinking too much of myself and forgive me if it is, but that okay. I kind of like gave voice to like an apologetic, you know, method in Eastern Orthodoxy that they didn't really have. Mm. Like I kind of, I don't, I'm not saying I invented it totally, but I never knew of anyone doing it beforehand or since, but then it seemed like all of a sudden Jay Dyer, who I believe does have a reformed background, picks this up and now he's moving with it in his direction. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wanted to, I guess, come on the show and say, you know, like, you know, I repent, you know, mea culpa, you know, I thought I was doing my, my due diligence, sure. uh, even though that due diligence gave me a full circle back around to actually recognize the, the what I see as the problems. So to bring that to the to the question that you asked, um, the, I don't know if there really is a, uh, a substantive identifiable book that says this is what Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism is other mm. than what I wrote. Okay. And so it's kind of like a loose internet phenomenon. Yeah that just kind of exists maybe in one or two apologists worlds. Sure. And so it becomes influential and it becomes kind of like an entryway maybe for reformed people to kind of, it's becomes like a bridge for them into the Orthodox church. Mm. That's an interesting way that uh, describes it. Uh, Jeffrey, do, do you see, uh, because I know you're familiar with uh, Van Til scholarship and kind of the, the higher tier sort of presuppositionalism, right. so to speak. But do you see this kind of similar thing where presuppositionalism is really taking root at a popular level amongst like lay persons, just as, as Joshua expressed, like this pre this Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism is almost like an internet phenomenon. And that's not to diminish it. I mean, there's some, I mean, take Jay, for example, I mean, I've listened to a bunch of his debates He's an excellent debater. There's really some good stuff there as well, as well as areas that we would disagree. Is that your experience in understanding kind of how presuppositionalism exists right now? You have kind of the scholarly approach and then there's kind of like a, a swelling kind of layperson popularity with the method. That appears to be, that appears to be the case, Eli, that, uh, but I find it interesting that this might be, uh, a phenomenon that is that has arisen in the context of Eastern uh, of the internet, you know, okay. the greater greater access, yeah, uh, to resources. Uh, I come, you know, I I come. I, I don't. I wasn't raised Reformed. I was thirty years old when I before I came to the Reformed faith. Uh, I was a pastor in, a, in in the Salvation Army, and that's the denomination I grew up in. Uh, and I was reading Reformed theology then, which is probably how I got infected. And it sounds like Joshua's experience was very similar in that regard. Sure. Uh, I've been a student of the Church Fathers since about 1987. Okay. Uh, reading them 
uh, certainly no expert, but but uh, I got got a hold of the anti-Nicene fathers in the Erdman's TNT Clark, and then I added the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers, and now I I read the I have in my Logos software I've got the mean. Uh, I'm I'm just waiting for the Latin fathers in mean to show up. And okay. Then because that's like 150 volumes or or more. Right. Wow. It's the original text with the Greek fathers. Sure. Uh, so I'm not surprised uh, if presuppositionalism, as, as Cornelius Ventil developed it, which arises out of the 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 um, confluence of the Dutch reform and uh, English and Scottish reform. Uh, traditions in, in the context of the OPC uh, and the CRC back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, Christian Reformed Church. Uh, if if he has tapped into truth, biblical truth, I'm not going to be surprised if I see elements of that showing up in earlier eras. Irenaeus is, of course, uh, an Eastern father who served in the western church because that's what made me wonder joshua how he would be classified so he's classified as an eastern father i gather Um, i think catholics and uh eastern orthodox would probably equally seek to link to him because he came he came from um syria i think so also an oriental orthodox would also probably lay claim to him so, just i mean he, he's a he's a basic you know early 150 ad uh you notice i said ad and not uh ce yeah um, so 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 it makes so, sense. anyway so it makes sense that there would be historical just as we see you know i'm sure our eastern uh friends would not be eastern orthodox friends would not be uh, overly enamored with Augustine, but to say that Augustine is a precursor to Van Til's method, I think the City of God is is a is a fairly presuppositional uh, book. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised that the Joshua would find uh, resonances uh, between, uh, say, someone like Irenaeus. Uh, in the uh, apostolic preaching sure. so you didn't look at the uh, uh against heresies i i take it i did you know, i looked at on apostolic oh, preaching and then i looked at the uh, intros and conclusions to each of the five books of oh okay heresies but i also took athanasius and gregory of nyssa and just did a very brief survey which ends up being an appendix uh mm-hmm. in that book and i see Kind of a similar instinct at work you know i mean maybe someone would want to debate my my findings or something but at sure. least that was what i found so now i think it's interesting because you have uh this question comes up a lot at the popular level right people who criticize presuppositionalism well you know presuppositional methodology as van till developed it is an apologetic novum it doesn't exist until he comes along and tries to link it together with reform theology but what you're suggesting is that there are seeds of this kind of thought, maybe not as fully developed uh, as it comes in Van Til, but you see seeds of this throughout church history. Inconsistent seeds. I mean, there were, people aren't doing it self-consciously necessarily, but there is definitely some historical precedence for it. I think that's an important thing to, to point out. 
But um, if I can shift the, the discussion real quick, just to make sure we get back on track in terms of comparing the, the two forms of presuppositionalism. Joshua, you wrote an article on your blog, The Reformed Ninja, which, by the way, is an amazing name. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> the cool. That is literally the coolest. Yeah, that was I literally pictured in my mind a ninja <laughs> holding a sword in one hand and a copy of Calvin's Institutes in the other. Like, that's just a weird, <laughs> a weird picture, but it's awesome. <laughs> But you wrote, um, you wrote an article. It wasn't crazy, like in depth and long, but it touched on some a really interesting um, point. And it's called Eastern Orthodox ecclesiological presuppositionalism: a mistaken foundation. And I thought that was very fascinating. Can you explain for us Eastern Orthodox ecclesiological presuppositionalism? And maybe by doing so, you can give us the context as to how an EO presupper kind of comes at this whole issue. And then I'll ask Jeffrey to pop back in and kind of give us the reformed context. Yeah. Um, so my understanding of Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism has to do a lot with that, like the necessary preconditions for knowledge. And so rather than simply presupposing the authority and truth of the scriptures as their ground for epistemology, uh, they actually also widen that to include the church uh, and specifically the Eastern Orthodox Church. So I don't mean like the, the church is like the mystical body of Christ, but very specifically that narrow sectarian uh, administrative continuity that exists within the larger church that is the Eastern Orthodox Church. So the Eastern Orthodox Church is like a kind of like a narrow stream, make this claim that you can't actually have true knowledge like what we would say, like the like the the actual conclusions of presuppositionalism is that we re, is that we presuppose the truth of the Bible to to have certain knowledge. They include the church in that to say you have to have mm. the Eastern Orthodox Church in order to have true knowledge. So ultimately, that's I think it in a nutshell maybe what what it is. So the authority of the church is part of what we would call the our ultimate presuppositions. They put the church in there. And they will use the church as the necessary interpretive grid to identify what the word of God is so that they can use that as the foundation for the rest of their worldview. So they yeah. have God, they have scripture, plus the extra added element of what Protestants don't have, right? The church as an authority to identify scriptures. And so when they argue against Protestants, they'll do often what presuppers do to the atheists. They'll put a wedge in their view to show that your view would entail some form of skepticism or inability to provide the necessary preconditions for knowledge. Because say, for example, if I was an EO presupper arguing against a Protestant, you don't have the church to tell you what is the word of God. And so you can't appeal to the word of God as your ultimate authority because you need us. So we have God, scripture, and the church. Is that, have I got it right? That sounds like what it is to me. Yeah. It sounds like you hit the right. nail on the head. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I would highly recommend folks check it out. I read the article in just a couple of minutes. It's not terribly long. Yeah, it is called Eastern Orthodox Ecclesiological Presuppositionalism, A Mistaken Foundation. Okay. That's at reformedninja.blogspot.com. Now, Jeffrey, um, yes, sir. You, you come from a reformed Vantillian perspective. Uh, what is, if you can tell us, what is Vantillian presuppositionalism and define it in such a way as though you've never, you didn't hear anything Joshua just said. 
Right. Well, like, and, yeah. and uh, uh, I would define it even because I'm, this is a new phenomenon to me. Sure. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism. Okay. Uh, so uh, Van Til sees his, his, his work as bringing to bear reform, uh, the Bible and Reformed theology uh, into apologetics, so that apologetics, so that apologetics is Reformed theo theologically driven. It, unlike, uh, say, uh, a beloved Reformed theologian like B.B. Warfield at Old Princeton, uh, who saw apologetics, uh, and this is probably not his language, but my language, this pre-theological, mm. right, as, as being a more philosophically uh, driven discipline. Dr. Van Til is, is seeking to bring to bear uh, both both the Dutch Reformed tradition, thinking in terms of Kuiper and Bavink, uh, and, and the old Princeton tradition of Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, etc. Uh, and uh, as you may know, Dr. Bonson, in his uh, volume, Van Til's Apologetic, uh, around 493, page 493 or thereabouts, yep, there, uh, he has a discussion of Van Til building on the, uh, on both, on both uh, Warfield and Kuiper. And I would throw in, I, I think that Bovink is more of an influence even than Kuiper. Mm. Mm. So that when you when I was, began to read Bovink in its in its English translation, I'm thinking, wow, Bovink is Vantillian. No, it's it's you know that's anachronistic. Uh, okay. Vantill is Bovinkian, right? Uh, so so that that's his goal. He, he's 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 uh, fashioning, uh, and it's not really a fashioning. It's more of an application to apologetics of. Uh, reform theology is as as uh, uh, brought together in old Amsterdam and old Princeton, uh, and of course we would add to that, uh, you know, uh, Francis Turretin, uh, because Turretin for the first uh, 60, 50 some years of old Princeton Seminary's existence, uh, Turretin was the main textbook until Charles Hodge wrote his systematics. And it replaced Turretin, and that was in the Latin, by the way. That was the Latin version of sure. the of Turretin. Uh, so Van Til is sees his his what he's doing is to bring apologetics, uh, reform theology, to bear on apologetics. So it's not apologetics isn't done outside the fortress, and then you gain entry into you get the, to use an analogy the drawbridge. Uh, apologetics isn't pulling the drawbridge down to gain entrance into the castle. Uh, it's uh, apologetics is is on the inside lowering the drawbridge, right? Uh, it just occurred to me. So if it's a bad analogy, I apologize. <laughs> uh, but it's um, so I'm I'm more curious than anything to see how, uh, but but Joshua's article, as you mentioned, Eli, uh, in terms of how to compare and contrast uh, uh, an Eastern Orthodox version of presuppositionalism uh, that at the very least expands the sola scriptura to the sola ecclesia, uh, 
which is intriguing. I'm curious to see how how that works itself out in an actual form of argument. I mean, I, I did. I have seen it. Uh, I've watched a few of the Jay Dyer videos. Jay mm-hmm. Dyer is an Eastern Orthodox. Is he a layman? Uh, who is so. who, yeah. who trained under Greg Bonson in the, the days of his reformed uh, pilgrimage. Uh, so he still uses a modified form of what he learned uh, at the feet of uh, Dr. Bonson. Uh, there were uh, changes that that are related to Greek uh, Eastern Orthodox theology. He cite he had a debate with Trent Horn that I that I watched uh, okay. recording. Uh, fascinating, uh, by the way, an example of a. Uh, of a courteous debate throughout, mm. although disagreeing rather forcefully in terms of ideas, but not in terms of personalities. Which is right. Good yeah. I really did enjoy that, that interaction. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you could see throughout the discussion, throughout the debate that, 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 uh, um, that Jay is drawing upon various uh, Eastern Orthodox theologians, both past and present. Uh, um, and I, I, part of me thought, well, this, this, uh, a knowledge of this, awareness of this would, would probably benefit us reform guys in this, in the same way that when we read a John Owen or a John Calvin our forebears had a greater familiarity with patristics uh, than we do. I think that can be attributed to simply we're now 500 years since the Reformation. Uh, they 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 were at the fount at the, the 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 place of origin of the of the Reformation, and so they were closer to a medieval. Uh, they were trained as medieval academics, and so they had familiarity. Uh, the loss of that is not the loss of that knowledge is not an improvement i don't think um so being so watching him and seeing how he debated trent horn was fascinating mm-hmm. uh so i could i so i saw i've seen the I, this idea of the sola ecclesia uh version of a presuppositionalism at work um, I mean, if I, I could go down a list of doctrinal points where I think the Eastern Orthodox tradition differs from Reformed theology, and that's generally how I would, sure. I would, I would do things. Simply because uh, it, I think we err if we treat the transcendental method as if it were a deductive argument. In other words, the method is arguing for the impossibility of the contrary. Uh, there are benefits to reducing that to to a syllogistic, a form of a syllogistic argument. However, there there are limits to that as well. Okay. So that so that I would say it could be reduced to a series of syllogistic arguments. Eli, you and I have had that conversation. Sure. I, so I would I would think, given what I'm aware of with regard to what Van Til was trying to do, which was to create a to formulate a reformed apologetic uh, 
based upon a reformed epistemology and a reformed ontology and a reformed ethic to, okay. to draw in the three elements uh, generally in philosophy, right? Uh, that that uh, Dr. Van Til intended to produce an apologetic that would was would not be applicable in other traditional contexts. However, um, being historically minded as I am, uh, I would say that it doesn't surprise me that we might we would find foreshadowings uh, of this in in earlier theologians who are seeking to be biblical and orthodox sure, in the broad sure. sense of orthodox. Now, Jeffrey, if you could if you could help me with this question because I get this question all sure. the time, what where would you pinpoint the necessary link between reform theology? and presuppositional apologetic methodology because a lot of people will say i mean well, you know maybe it's like what's like well it, right. it fits within a reformed context and I've, I've actually had some people say well i find presuppositionalism interesting but uh, i have one friend he says the problem with presuppositionalists is that they're they're greedy they think it only they, they just want the argument for themselves but i think as a non-reformed person we can use it just right. fine what is the necessary link that makes presuppositionalism reformed, and then you know, we'll invite Joshua a, back in for uh, in my next point that I want to I want to ask. Poor brother Joshua now has uh, has his turn of of, of watching and listening. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that I I'm able, and this is a project that we may maybe all the three of us can work on in the for the future sure. would be to pinpoint. In other words, um, the uh, presuppositional method of apologetics is not merely a, a just a it's not a merely a bare bones methodology. It's a methodology that arises out of out of a theology. Yes, right. Uh, uh, and so, uh, the one place where I would obviously start would be the triune nature of God. Now, you see that does connect us back to an Eastern Orthodox uh, approach because if there's anything that Eastern Orthodoxy is is strong on, it's, it's going to be Trini Trinitarian theology. Um, so that that would provide that may provide an avenue for a bridge, but also we would want to, for instance, Jay Dyer uh, built some of his arguments or comments in the um, the various videos that I've watched on the essence energies distinction, which is not something that we in the reform uh, community uh, sign on to, although Michael Horton in his uh, Christian theology textbook does, I believe, uh, speak uh, positively about it. Sure. So, um, but historically, that's not the essence energies distinction has not been, at least with that language, has, mm. has not been uh, at the center. Uh, so that would be an area, I think that would be an area of difference. I know when, when the idea, when you and I were first talking about this, Eli, I had wondered uh, about um, sin and an understanding of what salvation is 
and, and Joshua has already touched upon it because of his discussion of penal substitutionary atonement and his reading of J.I. Packer on that on that topic and, and, and other reformed theologians, no doubt. Um, so there are, di there are vast differences uh, between the East and the West, and as Protestants were primarily in the, from the West, although I would say there are some groups that call themselves Protestant because they don't have a, I, I, well, my last congregation in the Salvation Army was in New York City, and we rented out our sanctuaries on Sunday afternoons uh, to a, a little, uh, not a little group, it was a fairly good-sized congregation of uh, folk that came out of the Greek uh, Orthodox Church who were now evangelical. Uh, so that, so that um, there are... Uh, some who call themselves evangelical or Protestant, but that's because they're what they mean is they're not they're no longer Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox. Okay. They're but and but they're not technically speaking Protestant. Uh, so I mean, I was going somewhere with that. I apologize. <laughs> it went right out of my head. Uh, well, <laughs> so, um, but so in. I, again, I would be looking at particular points of uh, doctrinal headings, Loki, as they uh, refer to them. Okay. Or, or if you like to mispronounce your Latin, you can say loci, um, if that makes you uh, happy. Uh, <laughs> but but, but uh, so there's almost an antithetical uh, thrust to what I would be doing. Okay. Look, if, if I were to... Um, in the sense, in the sense that I, you know, because of, uh, because if Van Til's method presuppositionalism arises from his theology, it can't help but be different. Right. Uh, right. In the in the end, uh, there will be, you know, again, there may there may be elements of overlap, and 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 that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, if presuppositionalism is is the 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 proper and and the only worthwhile apologetic that then then uh i would imagine others would see that and would try to to uh to use to use the method within their own context but i i would just wonder how well it would work considering sure. it was built it was built for a reformed context uh so what what is kept and what is tossed out when right. an Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, theologian or apologist sure. uses uses the method. Uh, yep. I would make one observation, if I may. Okay, even, and then I just want to cut in real quick because I want to bring Joshua yeah. into the discussion. But well, go ahead. Add, right. Why don't you finish your talk jo there? Joshua had mentioned that uh, that he didn't find any or many uh, Eastern Orthodox apologetics books. And I was wondering how much of that might be a reflection of what we in the West refer to as, as Christendom. So, so that uh, there, there's a, once the, the part of the world that you're in has been con largely Christianized, the, the sense, the existential need for apologetics might, you know, uh, be mitigated. 
and I wonder if that if that's what you're looking at is is that uh, the the need for apologetics uh, or the the felt need for apologetics usually will arise within a context of uh, of other world religions or other philosophies, right? So if if uh, you find yourself in in uh, you know in, in the in the Eastern Orthodox tradition in the Middle Ages, how likely will 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 you uh, run up against a self-declared atheist? Sure. Uh, or that kind of thing. It's that that's more yeah. of a historical observation. But but uh, anyway, so well, let, let's let, let's try to make this practically. I want to try something, and I hope you guys are okay sure. with this. Could we try to have a hypothetical? conversation between an Eastern Orthodox preceptor and a Reformed preceptor. So if you could say, suppose you guys are at a coffee shop, okay, and Joshua, you weren't reading Herman Bovink. I think that's what you were reading last time I spoke. Was it Herman Bovink? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, suppose you weren't reading Herman Bovink. You just finished writing your book. You're still Eastern Orthodox and you meet Jeffrey at a coffee shop and you guys get into a conversation. How would you engage Jeffrey from your perspective? Just a casual conversation. And Jeffrey, how would you interact with some of the things? So we can kind of have like okay. a mock discussion, nothing crazy, just so people can kind of see what does what does it look like for two presuppositionalists that have differing presuppositions? What, what does that look like? Would, would that be asking too much? Do we think we could try that? No, <laughs> I'm, I'm game. game. As long yeah, as I can argue against myself. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Yeah, so, we're so, asking so, him no, to, I'll be the to, third wheel. I'll be the third wheel. I'll be like, hey, okay. Jeffrey, I know you're reformed. I have uh, my friend Joshua here, um, and he he's into apologetics, and, and he wanted to have a conversation with you. Like, uh, why don't you guys talk it out? I mean, why, you know, why do you believe Eastern Orthodoxy is true? How do you argue for it? Uh, how would you interact with a reformed person? Joshua, why don't, why don't you start us off in this mock hypothetical conversation? How might you go about sharing your faith and defending your faith from an Eastern Orthodox perspective? Wow, that's uh, that's that's challenging. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Eastern Orthodoxy builds itself as the non-apologetic mystical uh, tradition. You know, we don't do apologetics. We don't do systematic theology. But of course, to answer briefly to your que uh, question earlier, Jeffrey, apparently there is a lot of apologetics in like the Russian language from like the 19th okay. century and earlier that never quite made it. Um, and then in Greek, you would also have apologists as well, like Apostolos Makrakis, who would, you know, make all kinds of debates and arguments and stuff like that to defend the church. And so there'd be like anti-Catholic polemics. There'd be anti-Protestant uh, right. polemics uh, as well. So there definitely was a lot of, you know, polemics happening and arguments, you know, because if you affirm the filioque, you're a heretic and then it's abomination and, you know, that's that sort of thing. But, you know... Um, you know, I guess the the typical kind of approach would be, you know, well, we gave you the scriptures, so you don't really even know what the scriptures are, because you have to presuppose the church as the vehicle to gift them to you. Well, uh, actually, God gave us the scriptures, and the scriptures were authoritative the moment they were written. Uh, they did come by way of the church. There's no denying that, but the church is not the one who gave them. They may have, may have been the ones who safeguarded them, 
in God's providence. That was his, his way of doing that. Uh, but it's the same kind of response I would give to a Roman Catholic or even a, a Presbyterian like uh, John Gerstner, who made that kind of an argument. And, and, you know, I would chide Gerstner because he should know better. I might give a little, be a little more patient with the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox uh, friends. Uh, so that I, I would, I would say that, uh, the church is the the way, the path along which the scriptures have come to us, but they are not the source of the authority of the scripture. So that how would you himself. how would you respond to that, Joshua, from an Eastern Orthodox perspective? Yeah, um, but who gave them to you? The church. So, for example, how do you know that Third John belongs in the scripture? somebody had to had to hand it over to you and so why did you trust them i mean we're not we're not uh, debating the mormon canon but we could or we could debate the the catholic canon yeah. or we could de debate any number of of things so it's like if i say that it's self-attesting i also have to have some kind of authoritative af uh, affirmation as well right I don't have to have them. I like the emphasis there. That was good. I don't think we have to have them. That that we do have them, there's no doubt. Uh, and I'm thankful. I mean, it, 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 you know, if there was no one between the giving, you know, the say Paul writes uh, this letter to the church at Rome, uh, and there's no one from that point till now, uh, I would be a bit worried that there was no one, no other Christians. Again, an argument that I often have made from the pulpit is that the Holy Spirit didn't start working with his church with me. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is at work in the church, in every part of the church from the beginning. So, so that uh, where there are believers, true believers in Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, there the Holy Spirit is at work. The, the church is, is a part of God's plan, but it is not, it does not, it has a derivative authority. Its authority is derived from God by way of the scriptures, but its authority is not self-sustained. It is not self-attesting. That's why I would have trouble with, with a, a sola ecclesia form of, of uh, presuppositionalism because uh, and I, being historically minded, love uh, and give a lot of weight to, to church history, but I don't put it in the same category as the Word of God. The the history is important, and if there's you know if there's one thing evangelicals are guilty of, it's it's short term memory. Uh, you know, at, at best they might remember that there's 500 years of church history when in fact we know there's 2000 years of church history and that and that enriches enriches even our reformed apologetic insofar as similar as you've read bovink bovink isn't writing off the top of his head he's citing various uh, theologians from the history of the the church east and west he's he's interacting with unbelieving thought as well uh, in his his work so that the, um, but I would say 
that uh, while the church is the guardian of the truth, that sounds like something Paul might have said to Timothy. Um, and and but it is not the origin of authority. It's it's uh, whatever authority the church has, it has from God by way of the scriptures. Well, uh, that, let me interject there as a third wheel, and then Joshua, you could jump in for, if you had a, some thoughts from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. So, Jeffrey, would you say that the church, just just a yes or no, if I was cross examining you, is the church the infallible identifier of the canon? Yes or no? No. Okay, so it seems to me, kind of in favor of the Eastern Orthodox perspective, that you have a fallible church identifying the infallible scriptures. Um, identifying or recognizing? Is there a, is there a significant... Uh, we can say, okay, so they're recognizing... The a fallible church is recognizing the infallible scriptures. Yeah. So you Church have it that me, argument. It seems to me that you have an unreliable mechanism by which you are saying you're recognizing that which is the honestos, that which is the inspired word of God. So I've often heard this. No, argument. no uh, uh, because the scriptures are divinely inspired, they have their own authority. Okay. They possess their own authority because they come from God. God's authority doesn't rest on something higher than him. God's authority rests upon him. Uh, it derives from him. And so these, the scriptures uh, share uh, benefit from that insofar as God speaks uh, in, in the scriptures. Then the scriptures have, have uh, an immediate source of authority. Uh, basis for a th or ground of authority. Okay. Okay. And that's what they, what we mean by self-attesting or self-authenticating. Uh, in other words, it's not relying upon the church. Now we want the church to, to confirm. Notice they use the word confirm. They are adding their witness to what the scriptures say of themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, problem with our discussion so far, and, and this was in the back of my mind, is, is that when we use the, the term church, we're abstracting. Uh, there, there are a multitude of early church fathers, or church fathers, if you want to go up for, you know, the, the, all of the councils, uh, as well, you know, as in terms of a period of time, and if you're wanting to include all of the uh, revered theologians of your tradition, uh, and they don't all agree with each other. So if they're in disagreement, uh, which is the right the right view? Sure, sure. Um, just, that's just that's a that's a a question of fact uh, that they. Uh, often differ with e with each other, mm -hmm. just as commentators, Bible commentators, differ from one another on particular points. Uh, so we we need to to treat uh, the church as conversation partners, uh, and they do have an there is an authority to uh, an ancient practice. Being conservative as I am, 
politically as well as and philosophically and theologically I Burkean in that sense. Okay. I, I I I do recognize the importance of of prevalent or or a practice that has been in place for a long time. That sure. doesn't mean ultimately the scriptures are the authority. And if they call into question the longstanding practice, you know, that so much for the practice, but all other things being equal, mm. uh, something that is has been practiced for a long time. Of course, we can have old mistakes and old errors. Sure. But 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 so that's uh, those are some of the ways that I would, you know, de deal with the. the so you acknowledge you would acknowledge a fruitful relationship and conversant relationship between the church and the uh, and the scriptures. Yes. Okay. So I'm not a nuda scriptura sure. or a solo sure. scriptura person. Right. All right. So Joshua, why don't you chime in uh, just one more kind of uh, pushback, and then I want you to take off your Eastern Orthodox hat, and then I'd like you to share with us what are some ways that you have um, approach the Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism in terms of some of your criticisms of that method, perhaps even sharing some points from your, from your article. Yeah. Um, I guess if I was going to try one more pushback, uh, against, uh, Jeffrey, I would say, yeah, that's all cute and all, but, uh, you know, we gave you the scriptures and you're just laying claim to them from some 16th century innovation uh, you know, that's a total radical break with the church. Uh, and therefore, you know, you just are using our borrowed capital in order to make your claim. There, there's an, of course, a very, uh, a very, uh, strong element of truth to what you say, Joshua, that, that we're using borrowed capital. You're not supposed to admit that, Jeffrey. Come on. Well, no, no, kidding. no, no. I, I kidding, lean into, <laughs> I lean into my weaknesses. No, so, I'm so that, Yeah, no. So that, so <laughs> that, uh, um, but the reformers, John Calvin in particular, but, but also Echolampadius and, and Zwingli, uh, were translating um, John Chrysostom, right? John Chrysostom uh, sermons. That was apparently a big, that was one of the big projects that had been uh, underway and completed at some point during uh, Calvin's time uh, as, as uh, either in Geneva or Strasbourg or both. Uh, and, and so they didn't the, the, the reformers didn't see themselves as innovative. They said they, they saw themselves as a return right. to what had been the, the practice of the early church. And so yeah, that, that's the, that's the setup where the, the Protestant, you know, reformation is not a revolution. It's not, it's not a break. It's not a radical thing. It's a conservative movement. Right. So we identify well, at least as the, Right, as as uh, practiced by say uh, Calvin and Luther, uh, in many ways it is a conservative, uh, conservative uh, revolution. If you want to bring those two words together, uh, in it's a re but yeah, they saw it as as a return uh, to to uh, a, you know we would say a, a period of time before uh, unbiblical um ideas uh became commonplace or accepted in the church 
but ultimately, ultimately, you know, we can have long discussions about church history, but but to the question is uh, the the unique aspects, say, of Eastern Orthodox uh, presuppositionalism are they biblical? Uh, and of course, I'm speaking from the context of a Protestant Bible. I don't, uh, off the top of my head, I don't know if there's a difference between the Eastern Orthodox Bible and the uh, Protestant Bible. It's roughly um, equivalent to the Catholic canon. Okay, so they have the Apocrypha, basically. Yeah. Um, and then even though in, in the patristics, you do find testimony that the Apocrypha is identified as, uh, you know, not, not of quite the same level as the Old Testament or the New. Hmm. Um, and so I would... Deuterocanonical. Kind of, yeah. yeah. So I would say that, you know, the, the Protestant Reformation is a, is a renewal movement. You know, it's not an overthrow, which is kind of what I see a revolution as. Right. Uh, it's an overthrow and a restart. Um, and so in that sense, at least from that that angle of that term, like I would say it's a reformation and a renewal, you know, and that the Orthodox is actually not patristic. Like, I think they depart from Irenaeus's view of Scripture here um, and they're not biblical. Um, tell me if you can still see me. Yeah, can you're perfectly fine. We can see you. I okay, can see you, I can you. See you. there's no lag or anything. You're fine. Oh, good. No. I had a uh, a printer error earlier. It stopped. It just stopped printing today for some providential reason. Oh. So, um, <laughs> okay. but one of the things that the Orthodox Church, for example, says at the canonical level, um, the witness also, and this is from Decree Two in the Jerusalem Council of 1672, which is authoritative and accepted by all Eastern Orthodox patriarchates. Um, that the witness of the Catholic Church, which is in their case the Eastern Orthodox Church, is, we believe, not of inferior authority to that of the div divine scriptures. So they, in principle, at the, at the polity level, at the ecclesiological level, they elevate the church's voice to equal status with the author uh, authority of scripture. And that's completely non-patristic, in my opinion. Um, Irenaeus, uh, we find throughout, is would not agree with that. He said, they say, it is quite the same to be taught by the scriptures and by the Catholic Church. Again, the Orth Eastern Orthodox right. Church is what they mean by that. They don't recognize the Roman Catholic Church as a church. So when they say the Catholic Church, they mean the Eastern Orthodox Church. Sure. So the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, uh, it is impossible for her to in any wise err or to at all deceive or be deceived, but like the divine scriptures is infallible and has perpetual authority. Um, so to me, right there, they're elevating their voice to having the same status as scripture, which immediately, in my opinion, places them in an epistemological bind, which, okay. for example, because they, they make, uh, well, I'll just quote, Francis Turretin, for example, where he identifies the same kind of position because the Council of 1672 is around the same time when our, uh, when uh, Turretin was writing, was alive. Yeah, he was 1623 to 1687, where he identifies this same sort of argument in the Roman Catholic Church, this sort of vicious circularity where he says... Um, Therefore, the church cannot recommend the authority of the scripture either as to itself or as to us, 
unless we wish to make the cause depend on the effect, the principle upon that which uh, derived from it and the foundation upon the edifice. So he re uh, refers again, so those who make the authority of the church depend upon the scripture, oops, excuse me, a manifest circle would be made since the authority of the church is proved from scripture and in turn the authority of the scripture uh, from the church. So basically my response to the Eastern Orthodox person is, you call it scripture just because you say it is. That's the only reason that you have and you can't have any sort of falsified opinion. But because of the asymmetrical nature of, I, I, I think my move I would say is to have a revelational epistemology. Right. Um, and so God's word actually is an inbreaking of, of, of God's mind into an inscripturated form. But the church is a creature. It's created by the right. word. And so to elevate the, the creaturely voice to the level of the uncreated mind being revealed through scripture, to me, is just manifestly false. I think it's, it, defeat, it destroys and undoes the, what I would call maybe the bridal principle mm -hmm. of the church. The bride doesn't have equal authority to the bridegroom. She responds to his voice. She doesn't determine his voice. So she's placed into the position of determining God's voice. She's saying she's equal to God. And that's exactly what their counsel said. Her voice is equal to God's voice because they say it's the same spirit. So they have an open canon. They've essentially destroyed the canon right. itself because whenever they speak, that's now canon. And so they can constantly shift and move the, the goalposts of truth just based on their own authority because there's nothing checking them. Mm. There is no authority to which they submit according to that ecclesiological principle that they have. And so I think they get defeated by that, by their own. And I think that would be an internal critique of their position because it's basically just fideistic because in the sense that they received the scripture, the Orthodox guy sitting across the coffee table, you know, from us, he received the scriptures the same way we did from our forefathers. We are the inheritors of Nicaea. We are the inheritors of Constantinople. We are the inheritors of Chalcedon. And we exist in an ecclesiological continuity from the apostles to today. The Reformation is no restart. It's a renewal. It's a sloughing off of all of the nonsense and noise that uh, the church had developed in the West over the course of centuries. So it was an actually an immune response, I would say, uh, of the church. And so in that way, we receive the Bible the same way that they do. And it becomes, as uh, William Shedd, I really like uh, Shedd's dogmatic theology, where he says, the canonicity of a New Testament book is not settled by the authority of the primitive church, but by its testimony. And I think you were uh, hinting at that uh, or, or pointing to that earlier, Jeffrey. Um, and he makes this additional observation that the authority of the first Christians is no higher than that of any other Christians. In terms of authority, Clement, Ignatius, Athanasius, they're not of any intrinsically greater authority than us. But those people earliest to, uh, you know, uh, to the events are ha do have a weightier testimony. 
but that doesn't grant what they say more authority in terms of assigning canonicity. Because if we were in, you know, uh, the first century and Paul, I think you were pointing at this also, Jeff, earlier, is if Paul hands me Romans, right, or whoever the letter carrier is, and this is determined to, uh, we, yes, this is Paul's letter to, to, you know, the Romans. Paul handed it to me. I have it now in my hand. It has intrinsic authority. So if I hand that letter to my son, or my spiritual son will say, and I say, hey, this is Paul's letter. I submitted to this. You should submit to the apostle's word too. He hands that to his spiritual son. He hand, His spiritual son hands that to his spiritual son. And it's, it's always the authority of Paul that is conveyed, which is the authority of God speaking through Paul. So the authority of God's word is always conveyed in, as an intrinsic self-attesting, intrinsically self-attesting authority because it's an inbreaking of God. And so my testimony to it doesn't lend it any authority. It just, it's just a recognition. It's just a, just a testimony. And I think that is ultimately a, where the Eastern Orthodox sort of position kind of fails is because they're just making the same claim that any other kind of church in their same sort of position would make. And so the question isn't a question of canon. The question is, is who gets to say they're the church? Right. And so they shift the argument to, well, you don't even know what the Bible is. Well, we say, well, you don't even know who the church is. You can't know because you only know because you say you are. And then you point at history. But now history, we've gone outside of the scope of, of, uh, of the canon of Scripture to say that, well, I'm going to side with, you know, Ephesus 2. And I'm going to become a Coptic. But who gets to umpire that? The only reason the Eastern Orthodox guy says the Coptic is wrong is why? Because he was born in Russia and the Coptic was born in Egypt? You know, if we're having an argument in the 1800s? Sure. And so it just becomes a kind of tribalism, a sectarianism, a fideism, really. Where it says, well, well, it's only because my dad gave it to me that I can know that it's... But we received it from our fathers in the same way that they did. And we asserted a system of confirmation. But again, that wasn't lending any authority, but because of the way they established their authority, they actually lend authority to the to the canon. But it's like, no, 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 no. We don't find that in Irenaeus at all. So that'd be my counter argument to even my own book, you know, uh, when I talk, talk about that is like, I think Irenaeus himself, if I'm gonna find presuppositional apologetics in Irenaeus, I'm going to also look at his doctrine of scripture because his notion of tradition is something very clearly identifiable. It's a, it's the rule of faith that could basically be summed up in the apostles creed. His mm. book on apostolic preaching is the rule of faith mm. in that form. So to say that there's some other tradition, some other rule of faith that mystically Gnostically kind of assigns authority to scripture is, is not true. He's saying that the scriptures are authoritative. This canon helps us to understand it, but really it's the scripture that's always had this authority. I have a question. So you said something that the Eastern Orthodox claim that they are the church is fideistic. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, if I'm thinking like a presuppositionalist who's using a transcendental way of thinking, uh, couldn't they say it's not fideistic because we have a justification for it and the justification for it is its transcendental necessity as providing the necessary preconditions for knowledge. So how would we engage the person who says, wait, 
There's a transcendental justification for this because the church gives us that necessary epistemology, that mechanism that gets us to uh, knowledge because we can identify scriptures, which in turn give us all this other information about what God says about the nature of the world and, you know, you know how we know what we know and, and how we should live our lives. I think the reformed argument, and you tell me, Jeff, what you think, is that the reason why the transcendental argument works is because it's an inbreaking of the divine mind. Right. That's correct. It's not a creature's mind that becomes a, an epistemic precondition. Okay. It's not Jerry's mind or Jill's mind or Jack's mind or all three of them put together and saying their mind. I mean, that, that might, that might work in a business setting and it's like, well, the boss tells me to do this. So I have to do it because the boss says it, but that's not, I don't think epistemic certainty. I don't think that actually functions as an apologetic. So if they claim that the church is that necessary piece, it gets right back to that issue that you're talking about, that there is the creation that is taking this role that it, it doesn't it doesn't have. It's putting itself above the divine mind because it's the created mind, the created corporate mind of the church that identifies the divine words of God. Yeah, they're not actually submitting to revelation. They're the revelation. So whatever they right. say is revelation. So you have to obey whatever they say. Well, how do you know it's true? Well, because I said it. So why mm -hmm. should I listen to you? Well, because I told you to. And the internal critique would be when someone says, and I'm just thinking out loud here, maybe to, uh, hopefully this will help for the listeners. If I, it, So the internal critique would be, well, if you say the church is, you know, the Eastern Orthodox perspective of the church provides that necessary epistemic link, right? We can just say it doesn't because of the reasons you expressed with the created being placed over the creation or it's arbitrarily being identified with the divine voice of God. Yeah. I think that and also the fact that there's really nothing substantively that distinguishes the Orthodox claim from the Roman Catholic claim from the Oriental right. claim. Mm. One of the biggest things that I would, if I could, you know, just caution anyone who wants to do a, a apologetics with an Eastern Orthodox person or with a Roman Catholic is don't go toe to toe with them. They have their own battles. For example, the Eastern Orthodox is in a protracted 1,000 year debate over whether they're the church or whether the Roman Catholic Church is the real church. They both mm -hmm. somehow existed for a thousand years and they can both share the same presupposition that the Orthodox guy is now telling us. But what happened in 1054 AD that legitimized his argument against over and against the Roman Catholic? Mm. And so I think that's another falsifier for them is that they've so narrowed the scope of the movement of the church through history to themselves that they actually leave themselves wide gaping holes of well why can't the roman catholic say the same thing then mm -hmm. he has the exact same criteria as you do well no he doesn't because they have the filioque well why is the filioque wrong well because we say it's wrong well how do you know it's wrong because we said it and so it becomes viciously circular because the only revelation is for them is the fact that they say it but then the Roman Catholic's going to turn around and say the same thing. Well, we have the papacy. And then the Oriental Orthodox is going to say the same thing. And then the Assyrian Orthodox is going to say the same thing. And then the Anglicans are going to say, well, hey, hey, we've got an unbroken line of bishops over here too. Can't we you know, be a part of the conversation? And so the very conditions which the Eastern Orthodox try to assert and prop up their claim to authority, five other churches make an equal historical claim to those same criteria. Right. And so that's where the debate is. 
not whether we can say what the canon is, but why do they get to say anything at all? Mm. They have to defeat their Roman Catholic and Oriental Orthodox interlocutors before what, why should we have to like, it's like a Royal rumble. Like, why am I going to, why am I going to fight this guy? Let him fight Andre the giant for, if he wants all day. And, right. you know, and, and then after <laughs> that, you can fight the ultimate warrior. And now I'll, I'll get the tired version. So <laughs> that's a good example. <laughs> so, um, World Wrestling Federation uh, reference. Go, yeah. <laughs> so I, I had a question and it, it left me. So so you have the authority of the Roman Catholic. Okay, so here's my question. So when the, uh, let's suppose you have a Roman Catholic presuppositionalist, which actually exists. Uh, there are Roman Catholic presuppositionalism. Bonson even addressed this question. Even back in the 90s, someone asked him a question. Uh, regarding uh, Roman oh. Catholic using presuppositional argumentation. So, um, but anyway, um, when it comes to defending the church from either a Roman Catholic position and an Eastern Orthodox position, do you think that there is kind of cherry picking amongst the church fathers to validate the authority of the church, you know, appealing to who's got the consensus of the fathers on their side? Oh, certainly. Okay. That's, that's like, that's like a sport. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, the fathers say almost anything. Okay. You know, I mean, if, if people can do that with scripture, right, right. you know, uh, people do that with the fathers. Yeah, so, I always think that yeah. was interesting. I do often hear people say, like, you need the church to interpret scripture. But then, of course, you need to interpret the church. You need to interpret the fathers. And so if if interpretation requires the infallible church, like, well, how do we interpret properly the infallible church? If we could interpret the infallible church's words, then it would seem that language is already a sufficient mechanism to understand it. So why don't we just go straight to the scripture for that case? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it's, I, I think that's, uh, I probably can't find it right here, but it's similar to an argument Turretin made. Okay. Uh, you know, so the, the very thing that would cause us to submit to the voice of the church, I mean, that, that would cause the church to submit to the scriptures would be the same argument that would cause us to submit to the scriptures. So why don't we just go straight to the, the scriptures? If there's right. a, an argument that would cause us to go to, to the to the church, I mean, that, that would cause the church itself to go to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. That sufficient argument would cause me to go and you to go to the scriptures. So what's with the, the notion of a, of a hierarchical middleman? Right, right. Interesting. It becomes redundant and then just it becomes authoritarian. <laughs> if they're friendly about it it's i mean it like authoritarian in principle you well, know not necessarily the, psychological the 1672 council or whatever year that was that where they described the church as infallible those that's the same basic argument that the roman catholic church uh uses for papal infallibility right and they I were mean, apparently being t uh, taught out of Jesuit textbooks at the time, those that the theologians who were crafting those Got statements. Through. Right, right. That doesn't right. surprise me. Well, we are at one hour and 22 minutes. I'd like to kind of go through some of the comments here uh, and see if we can interact with some of them. Sure. And there's one that I liked here. Uh, I'm going to go from the bottom up because it takes forever to, let me see. Okay, let's see here. Um... Do, 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 do. All right. So someone, okay. So enslaved by truth says this is a solo scriptura debate. Can we address the title of the video? Now I picked this comment because the answer to this 
I think completely misses the point because it misses the importance of the sola scriptura in the debate. <laughs> it's right. it's a central feature of the debate. So uh, talking about sola scriptura is very relevant to understanding the nature of the debate itself. So um, how would you address this in a little bit more detail? Either of you can take a stab at it. Someone says, well, wait a minute. You guys are just talking about sola scriptura. You know, how does this answer the question of whether presuppositionalism fits within Eastern Orthodoxy? Uh, anyone want to take a stab at that? I mean, my initial reaction is to say things are complex. In other words, ultimately, the answer to the question, does Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism make sense? The answer is no, okay. uh, given its reformed origins. However, we, as a matter of fact, there are both Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic presuppositionalists, and you know we don't, we're not denying the existence of these folks. Nor are we necessarily denying that they have have had some value, that they've had some uh, success or whatever in their uh, apologetic endeavor. It's simply to say that uh, from a biblical Ultimately, when I say something, when I say Vantillian or I say Reformed, I'm ultimately saying Biblical. Okay, so that from a Biblical perspective, uh, EO presuppositionalism, or EOP if we want to for short, uh, doesn't uh, work. And, and that you would have to unpack that in detail with each of the doctrines starting with the doctrine of God and, and we've just happened to have fallen into a discussion of the scripture issue because of, of, of Joshua's making reference to that council in the 1670s, which mm -hmm. claimed ecclesiastical infallibility. Right. Okay. Do you have any thoughts there, Joshua? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you're making a really good point you know, Jeff, the kind of interconnectedness of these doctrines, um, because as presuppositionalists, we're going to un utilize scripture as our standard by which to assess, I think. And so I think, you know, taking it that next full step to see, well, why does the Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism uh, 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 not work becomes a kind of like a natural consequence of just asserting what is the ground of our knowledge, the revelational right. epistemology. And so I think once we recognize that scripture does exist in a, in a category of its own in terms of its, its metaphysical status as an inbreaking of the divine mind into the finite realm, it becomes the umpire. So if the Orthodox Church tries to elevate its voice to be of equal status with the umpire, they actually destroy the distinction mechanism by which we can even make these kinds of claims or arguments at all about really anything because right. they're so unfalsifiable. Mm -hmm. So whether they're contradictory or self-contradictory becomes irrelevant according to their first principles because yeah. it's just true whether they say it. So I think, you know, that's why Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism doesn't make sense because they actually confuse the creaturely voice, the bridal voice with the bridegroom's voice. Mm. So, so would I be correct in saying the sola scriptura debate is addressing the topic of the video because the issue is the nature of our authorities? I yep. think also ecclesiology too becomes a big part of it um, because part of the the difficulty, and we were touching on it a little bit here towards the end in our in our last little segment. I think mm -hmm. is 
the Eastern Orthodox Church, essentially, they're going to say they existed all the way back from the apostles. Right. But they have the equal kind of claim with everyone else. We go back to the apostles. Martin Luther was a presbyter, right? The, 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 the Protestant Reformation, the, the Calvinists and the Reformers had many, many presbyters among them. They weren't, you know, they weren't being Anabaptists and just saying, you, well, you have a, a move of the Spirit, so why don't you right. go start a church? They had schools. They had, you know, they would, they would uh, ordain people. Like there was always like a thoughtful, conservative, biblically oriented process, even if someone was like in the Episcopal side of things or the Presbyterian right. side of things or the more congregational side of things. So it's like there's this continuity. So, so the question is, is why does the Orthodox Church get to say it and the Roman Catholic Church not get to say it and the oriental orthodox church not get to say it and the syrian church so it's like that i think is is another kind of area of of dispute and i think for us our answer is 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 scripture is the umpire mm. so 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 all that to say soul scriptura is very relevant to the addressing this issue um so just yeah. to answer that question thank you so much for your or well i guess it was a, yeah it's a question um andy uh s 303 says the gates of hell will not prevail until the reformers help us out. You can kind of get the gist of what this person is getting at, right? So the gates of hell will not prevail. Obviously God is going to be guiding his church into truth, but apparently, you know, they were he doesn't out of use, the truth. I'm sorry. He doesn't use means or people in his church to accomplish his purposes. He, you know, I guess uh, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church unless Athanasius helps out. Uh, the gates of hell won't right. prevail against the church unless uh, uh, Maximus the Confessor helps out. I guess the gates of hell won't, will, right. won't prevail against the church unless Mark of Ephesus helps out or Photius uh, helps out. Right. Uh, there's so many times in history where we see God has raised up men or groups of men together to champion and push right. forward the truth and to proclaim it. And like there's sea changes and there's direction changes. Mm. Uh, that maintain the the steady line of truth to eternity. That's a great point because I'm thinking, uh, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail until the reformers help out help us out. So when the reformers help us out, they're illegitimate because look, the church needs the reformers as though God can't use the reformers. But when you appeal to the Greek fathers that serve your purpose, that's an example of God preserving His church. And uh, the gates of hell will not prevail. So that that would seem like a, a double standard to me if that's what the person is yeah. getting at. But uh, yeah, great, great response. There. Go ahead, Jeffrey. To, yeah, I was going to say, with regard to church history, uh, past theologians and leaders in the church are only uh, helpful insofar as they are biblical. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so, you know, for us reform guys, uh, we it, the it's a long-winded way of getting back to what we believe is biblical in other words we wouldn't have the heroes that we have if we didn't think they were biblical the reformers didn't think they were the first ones to to right. to, to see the truth they embraced and taught they believed that they were recapturing returning uh, that's what reforming means to, to form around, to form again, right. uh, according to us, uh, to the standard of God's word. Mm. All right. Great I point. Say it, it, it reminds me, you know, like that sort of comment reminds me of that uh, famous saying that, you know, if you learn history, if you're a Protestant and you learn history, you'll become Orthodox. Or if you're a Protestant and you learn history, 
you'll become Catholic. It reminds right. me of that other saying, though, to make a counter saying, uh, uh, if if you study a little bit of science, science as a Christian, you'll become an atheist. But if you study a lot of science, you'll become a theist again. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's similar, I think, with history. If yeah. you study a little bit of history superficially, you might want to become Orthodox. You might want to become uh, Catholic. But I think if you study history more deeply, you become Protestant because you realize that the reformers had real arguments for good reasons. They weren't they yeah. weren't trying to think of something to do to whittle away the time and to while away the hours. Right. Um, they were deeply immersed in the patristics and right. they were deeply immersed in the scriptures. And they went to the, the church fathers as a way to get out of the sort of scholastic kind of mechanism that became like too great of a filtration mechanism mm. that obscured the scriptures and the church fathers. So they were a patristic movement, even and I'm going to ramble just for one moment, if that's if that's, that's okay. okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, like there's a really popular thing amongst the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox is this doctrine of theosis and union with with God. But I've been speaking with a, a Reformed friend of mine, and I've been help, you know doing a little bit of like research, see if I can find some other resources. And I'm going back, and I'm finding in in Charles uh, Hodge. I'm finding in John Murray, I'm finding in people who were publishing prior to Vladimir Lossky, the famous Eastern Orthodox writer, who were talking about union with Christ. Even Thomas Boston, the great Puritan divine, was writing about union with Christ as a part of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, so that even imputation of Christ's righteousness presupposes union. So the idea that like Eastern Orthodox are like somehow novelly bringing up this issue of this great doctrine of, you know, union with Christ, it's actually a very standard reformed doctrine. Maybe it got a little dusty, you know, um, but that's just a matter of dusting off that doctrine. Right. It's mm. been Jonathan Edwards was very big into union with Christ. Uh, John Calvin building off of Bernard Clairvaux. Uh you know, so it, it it's biblical. It's called the Apostle Paul, Song, <laughs> Song of Solomon. Okay, okay, you know, it goes goes that far back. All right, very good. Uh, Enslaved by Truth says, if God is the precondition for all knowledge and God is real, then aren't even non-believers justified in their reason and knowledge? Uh, who'd want to tackle that one? If God is the precondition for all knowledge and God is real, uh, he is. And aren't even non-believers justified in their reason and knowledge? No, they are not. Okay. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 32, uh, uh, 18 to 21 in particular, is very uh, uh, explicit, and in Romans chapter 2, that we know God uh, by virtue of the law written the work of the law written upon the heart right. in other words uh, every human being since the creation of adam and eve in the garden of, and their placement in the garden of eden has been created in the image of god uh and and that involves what calvin referred to as the census divinitatis uh, sometimes called among the philosophers the consensus gentium, that is the 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 the, the sense of the community, uh, uh, that is, the, or the sense of the nations. 
Uh, and you'll even see that in Calvin when he discusses the sense of the divine, that that uh, it's a it's a theme that is pervasive throughout all the world. Uh, that that um, unbelievers are not justified in their reason and knowledge. In fact, they're condemned, according to the Apostle Paul. Uh, all all people know God by virtue of being made in His image, being surrounded by His revelation living in his world and living before the face of God mm. at all times. So, so that the unbeliever who is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, okay, remember that you can't suppress what you don't know. So all men know God. Not only do they know God in a bare conceptual form, they know the God of Scripture. They know the triune God of Scripture. Uh, they know what he expects of them. As Paul says in Romans 1, he said, not only do we know God, but we know what he expects of us in terms of our behavior. Mm. Uh, and that the unbeliever rejects that because the unbeliever does not want to acknowledge God as God. Uh, so, no, uh, unless, of course, the the... The questioner is asking whether whether unbelievers have true knowledge of God. If that's the, the the question, yes, they do have true knowledge of God, but they suppress it in unrighteousness. All right, thank you for that. Um, there's a question. Uh, let me see here. Uh, 1984 Sheepdog says, "If the reformers were from God, why didn't they show submission toward the hierarch hierarchy?" like David did towards Saul. I think um, that, did, until yeah, it came to the truth. Yes. Um, I mean, Martin Luther, you know, constantly would write about, he'd be willing to, to agree, you know, as long as he's not being asked to go against scripture, because the first submission is to God, and we have God's word, you know, directly in front of us as our direct authority. So a hierarchy could never ask us to disobey God. And still maintain any any like like Saul didn't ask David to sin. Right. Saul didn't ask David to confess something false. Mm. Um, but the papacy was asking Martin Luther to consent to confess something false. Mm. Yes. to recant on the truth. Right. So yeah, that that in that sense, even according to uh, Roman Catholic theology if 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 the pope were teaching heresy he would he would falsify himself in some way and some absolutists in terms of papal infallibility say a pope could never do that but if a bishop right. a hierarch is teaching untruth they actually invalidate their authority is my understanding hmm. this, which is what the reformers would have argued with regarding the church hierarchy this this is a question that presupposes what it needs to argue what it needs to prove that is, the hierarchy is equal to Saul. You see, that, that's one of the things that I would do is I would say, why do you assume that the church hierarchy is equivalent to the position of Saul? Mm. Yeah, I would not assume that. Okay. All right. Good. In other words, right. I wouldn't presuppose that. Right. All right. Very good. Um, Andy S303 says, St. Maximus, St. John Chrysostom, and the like are successors to the apostles, not Calvin, who didn't get the laying on of hands. 
How would you respond to that when we quote Calvin to make some point and someone says, well, you know, he's not one of the successors. So we, we shouldn't listen to, we shouldn't listen to, uh, to John Calvin. Um, go ahead, Joshua. Yeah. Um, I think there's some kind of, I don't know, almost silly assumptions in there. Um, okay. why would someone have to have a laying on of hands to say something true as a regenerate Christian in the church? I mean, there are Orthodox Christians, some of them were monks and they weren't even priests. Like if we're just going to take an Eastern Orthodox perspective, there were monastics who weren't ordained, so to speak, to the priesthood who would say true things and people collect their sayings. There's whole books with Desert Fathers quotations in them. Mm. And some of them are just totally anonymous. Um, but I don't think that Orthodox person would say those non-ordained, non laying on of hands person uh, or person who didn't have the laying on of hands wasn't legitimized to speak about anything that was worth writing down because that's what the collection of desert fathers writings is. Mm. Um, I, and I'm trying to think if Maximus, the confessor was even a priest, that's the one thing that I'm, uh, and I, I apologize if, if, if I'm, I'm just not remembering correctly, even though of course no, he right. died condemned and had his hand cut no. off, tongue no. cut out because of how infallible the orthodox right. is. The, um, the laying on of hands, of course, is a biblical uh, expectation for uh, a minister, uh, as, as Paul says to Timothy about the laying on of hands of the, of the presbyters, right? Uh, but the biblical understanding of apostolic succession is not organizational, but doctrinal or theological. It's not, an, it's not sufficient to show that your bishop is dependent upon the previous bishop, is dependent upon organizationally, dependent upon the previous bishop all the way back. It must be demonstrated that the, uh, that the, the man of God who is called to, the, to, to ministry, uh, who has been ordained through the laying on of hands, although that, there's no magic in that, that's just following a biblical command uh, <clears throat> that they that Calvin is a true successor to say John Chrysostom uh, insofar as both are biblical right insofar as uh, both are biblical or Saint Maximus insofar as he is biblical that is the true apostolic succession it's doctrinal or theological or biblical it is, it is not merely organizational. Jeffrey, and I would uh, yeah. agree, and I think you're making the major point, and I think the minor point, because I think the Orthodox or the Catholics in this way uh, have, exchange, have, have exchanged the majors for the minors here. I think we could even say that we also have the minor point, because I think when Calvin was... Uh, given, you know, the pulpit to, to preach from in Geneva, like there was a formal approval process yes. that he went through. Right. I don't think there really is a broken uh, um, laying on of hands. I think there right. were, I mean, it's the minor point, you know, it's not the substance of apostolic succession, um, but we're not like a new breed where we didn't like right. kind of sprout out of a crack in the sidewalk, uh, so to speak, you know. Um, so there That's has been apostolic succession. I think even in that minor sense, even though it's and even though it's not needed, there still was a continuity of actual real people 
transmitting authority and transferring authority from person to person in the churches. Yeah. And, and, and anyone who knows Calvin knows that in us Calvinists, uh, you know, knows that, that, that procedure is something we like to do decently and in order. Right. So <laughs> you're right that, that, that that's not something lacking from, from the uh, reformed wing of the reformation. Yeah. Uh, Andy comes on and says, says, Luther wanted to remove James and Hebrews. Let that sink in. Does this even remotely touch a Protestant view of who we quote and who we quote to make some true point? Um, why does this not even concern us as Protestants who hold to Sola Scriptura? Because we would, I mean, I, we would just hold Luther to the standard of Scripture and we could, there's it nothing, would. there's nothing inconsistent about a Protestant disagreeing with a quote unquote leader of the reformation the lead the reformation luther was wrong luther yeah luther was wrong. wrong yeah there's nothing to let sink in we would easily just say he's he's wrong and he's not a pope he's not infallible and uh that doesn't that doesn't bother protestant one bit i mean it bothers us in the sense that we think he's wrong <laughs> right yeah, but he, it doesn't should have been better than that right right uh, but he's a you know he's a fallible uh sinner saved by grace Right. And I think we did ultimately know better too. I mean, it's like, I feel yeah, like you're people, right, you're right. Like one of the people who gets most taken out of context of all people is Luther. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like from floor to ceiling, we could stack all of his writings, you know, and quotations. And he would speak like intensely and exaggeratedly sometimes. And, you know, with a kind of like an over the top style of rhetoric. Um, and so sometimes he got really frustrated with James and he thought that it confused the gospel. And so he said, oh, it's an epistle of straw. But then he, it's like he, it's not like he was walking around. And I think like maybe this could sink in. He didn't create an anti-James, anti-Hebrews Protestant movement. He wasn't walking around advocating, let's, let's, re, let's remove these books from the canon because they're not canonical. He just, he never did that. So it's like even trying to tar and feather Luther on that level to me seems like, I don't know, it's, 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 it's exaggerated, you know, kind of like Catholic polemics. Sure. Um, Pavel the first, I guess that's how you say it. The rejection of tradition by reformers resulted in cycles of rebellion between generations. This issue is still with us as church continues, continue divisions based on young and old. Uh, do reformers reject tradition? Nope. There you go. Okay. No. A lot of misunderstanding. Um, uh, what I would say uh, with regard, well, you know, you have rebellions and you have church splits. Um, those, as, as we know, predate the Reformation. As we know, there was a split between the East and the West, mirroring the divisions in the Roman Empire, right, uh, in 1054. Uh, and there are all sorts of disagreements within Roman Catholicism, to use a Western example, right? You know, they, uh, there's a tendency to, to uh, forget about that when we think of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and I'm sure the Eastern tradition is the same, has a similar situation, as does Protestantism. When, when there is a, uh, a failure uh, to abide by God's word, uh, then, then we're more likely to have rebellions between generations. Uh, this is not, 
uh, yes, it is true that uh, reformations are often uh, brought about in God's providence by younger men. Uh, it is not cannot be reduced to a young and old division. I don't mm. think. I would right. also add that I think that I don't I don't necessarily see in churches on a local level you know, like wars and rebellions right. between the generations. I mean, some of this is actually a cultural question related to modernism, postmodernism, right. industrialization, uh, you know, like how modern media works. Um, I think those are kind of big, huge influences. And I don't think we can say, well, it's the it's scripture's fault or it's it's Calvin's fault. It's like blaming everything on the filioque or blame, blaming mm. everything on Augustine. You know, it's like, you know, it's like I just banged my ham, ha, ha, my thumb with a hammer. It's Augustine's fault. How, how could he do that? You know, it's, uh, you know, oh, there's there's the cultural discord today. It's the it's Martin Luther's fault. Right. How dare John Calvin, you know, like, like it's not it's not a real argument. Right. I agree there. Uh, Haley says self authentic uh, self authentication. The Bible authenticates the Bible. Then why don't Protestants have Maccabees? Jesus talked about it. We do have Maccabees. We just don't say it's canon. Correct. Why? Why not? Well, I think I think testimony of the church is one. Okay. Like throughout history, it wasn't always accepted. I mean, you find patristic testimony that that some of these yes. books aren't a part of the normal Old Testament canon, and they're not a part of the New Testament canon, right. and they kind of exist in this quasi, you know, like this is just helpful, great old literature. We should read it. It's it's good. It's just not for use in the church, even though Christians can read it. It's kind of like this, uh, this like banned book kind of selling point that like people have it's like we didn't ban the church like right. the, the post-apostolic fathers we didn't ban the deuterocanon right we just said it's not quite of the authority of right. scripture like not a, i don't know what you lose if you don't have maccabees and we don't say maccabees is just full of falsehood and it's of the devil or something no it's right. it's it's but it's not we what we argue is not divinely inspired and when we talk about self-authentication, we say that the deuterocanonical books, the, the Apocrypha, is, I would argue, quite evident to those who read them, not on the same level with Scripture. Hmm. The Church Father Jerome, uh, I know he's probably, well, he's shared by the East and the West because he ended up in Bethlehem. Uh, he, he recognized... Uh, and uh, that the Apocrypha was not, uh, he argued it was not part of, of the Bible. Mm. But the, the idea of self-authentication, the Bible authenticates the Bible. Well, yeah, there's, there's a sense in which that's true because it's God's word. And I would ask the uh, hallelujah, Hallie, uh, does God answer to some higher authority? He's self-authenticating. And the Bible is self-authenticating because it comes from God. Uh, if you say that, that, that God must answer to a law of logic uh, uh, or that kind of thing, then you're saying the law of logic is, is more basic than God himself. That is more, more substantive than God himself, more authoritative than God himself. 
so the Bible is self-authenticating because God is self-authenticating. When God spoke in the Garden of Eden, he didn't uh, have to identify himself. Yo, it's God. Adam didn't have to say, show me the papers, prove it. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, we are uh, we are on one hour and 51 minutes. like to give a shout out real quick to Corrence Chandler for his $5 super chat. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Gentlemen, there's so much we can talk about. I mean, this is this, we just scratched the surface and uh, it's, uh, you know, there's a, it's a lot to take in. So I think we're going to try to wrap things up here because I want to, I want people to go back and watch this. If it's, if it's four hours long, I'm not sure they will. So, right. uh, so <laughs> but I want to thank you guys. You guys uh, did an excellent job covering uh, such a wide range of issues. I think the benefit, if I can kind of just close us off here, I think the value of a self-consciously reformed presuppositionalism and a self-conscious Eastern Orthodox presuppositionalism is that it allows reformed Christians and Eastern Orthodox Christians to interact at, interact at the level where we're supposed to interact, namely at the foundations. And so I think there's great value in having conversations with Eastern Orthodox folks who come from this position. And it makes the job a little bit easier because you're not playing on the surface like we normally do with the atheists who don't want to get to some of those foundational issues. The Eastern Orthodox presupper is aware of the importance of the foundations and it allows us to really speak at these core issues. So, um, you know, I'm grateful uh, for people who in the Eastern Orthodox tradition kind of uh, emphasize those foundational issues, even if we disagree. I mean, I still have a lot to learn from Eastern fathers, Western fathers, the reformers, um, and even in the midst of disagreements. I mean, I don't agree with Jay Dyer, but I've, I've watched a lot of his stuff and I've, and I've benefited from some of the applications that he made and um, definitely from a debates perspective, I think he's a good debater as well. A lot to learn. I think communication is important, um, but as long as we do it, governed by the biblical principle of gentleness and respect. Let us respect yes. our Eastern Orthodox friends, Roman Catholic friends, um, but have good solid argument and relationship so that the conversation can go. Not all of these discussions are necessarily like formalized debates. We want to have prolonged relationship with people so that we could have ongoing conversation right. as we kind of iron out our disagreements and hopefully by the grace of God, um, you know, the truth will prevail. So um, those are my my last kind of bits to say. Uh, are there any last things uh, any of you would like to say before we close off this episode? Thank uh, you. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed enjoyed the conversation thoroughly. I, I think there's, uh, uh, if, if you would have us back on, you know, there are a lot of other things we, you know, you, if you, if you want to, you could drill down deep and go doctrine by doctrine if you wanted yeah, to absolutely well if you guys are up for it i'd love to have you guys maybe we'll do a part two and dig sure. even deeper if you guys are up for it yeah all right well thank you so much ladies and gentlemen i just want to give you guys a heads up as we wrap things up here um if anyone has been following for quite some time you knew that we uh that i did a an online an epic online calvinism conference with myself um dr james white dr guillaume bignon uh, Chris, uh, Scott Christensen and Saiten Bruggenkate. Those recordings are available at a reduced price on the website. So if you guys want to um, order that, 
at revealedapologetics.com on the uh, you click on the precept you drop down menu and you could actually access those uh, recordings of that conference so um, helps out the ministry when you purchase it and it was really good so <laughs> you'll you'll benefit from it if you're interested in calvinism and things like that oh well this concludes this episode guys once again thank you so much and everyone in the comments uh, I know there was some uh, back and forth there, but I appreciate that everyone was respectful and, uh, you know, uh, that's all good. As long as you guys are interacting in a respectful mm -hmm. way, these conversations are important. I encourage that you guys have them. So that's it for this episode, guys. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Yeah.